So have you ever had something that needed to be repaired and you just didn't know how to repair it? Have you ever had something uh, happen in, in, in your life, something broke down that you just didn't know how to fix it? I, I think I've got a little bit of mechanical aptitude. Most of the time, if I look at something, I can usually figure it out with a little bit of work. I'm actually one of those people that generally I say the statement along the lines of instructions are for wimps. I can figure it out. Yeah, that doesn't always go as well as you'd think. Years ago, we had a, a minivan, Pontiac, Montana. And uh, at one point, we, we actually got 270,000 miles out of that vehicle that we put on it over the course of 12 years. So I think we got our money's worth out of it. But at one point, it broke down. And I knew that that was beyond my ability. Now, I, I've got, like I said, a little bit of mechanical aptitude, but that was beyond me. I was ready to go ahead and let it go and uh, cough and sputter and go buy a new vehicle. Well, a friend of mine who was retired, he, he had been a mechanic at one time, and he had a shop and all the tools I would need. He said, you know what, I will help you through it. He couldn't get in there and do all the work himself, but he could help me. I thought, well, that's pretty good. So over the course of several weeks, working on nights and, and weekends, I worked on the van, and eventually we got it fixed, put back together. And I was putting the last little bit together. He was unavailable to help me at this point, and so I was figuring it out on my own. But it was a simple thing. It was just the motor that operate the windshield wipers, you know, cause the windshield wipers to go back and forth. I looked at it. It's got bolt holes there. I'm the one who took it off. I mean, how hard can it be to put it back on? So I did. I put it back on, and when I tested it, the wipers didn't work right. Either they would go off the windshield completely, or they wouldn't go all the way down, but whatever it was that I did, I could not get them to work right. Over the course of several days and many bruised knuckles, I tried and I tried and I tried, and I could not get it. So finally... I caved. I went looking for instructions. Thank you, YouTube. I found an instructional video to find out that there was this one small piece on there that needed to be adjusted as I was assembling it in order for it to work right and pull the wiper blade back down where it's supposed to. Now, sometimes we go through life a lot like that. We look at the situations around us and we use our best judgment to try to figure out how it is to proceed from there. We create our own wisdom, you could say. Sometimes people use maybe a gut reaction. What do you feel in your gut to, be able to make this decision or which direction to go? Some people make decisions based solely on emotions. How do I feel at this moment? And they make the decision based on that. But nonetheless, what ends up happening is in many times, it's just like when I was working on the car. We end up making a mess of things. We end up taking longer in order to get it the situation worked out the way it should. We end up with bruised knuckles, so to speak, because we used a wrong source for the wisdom for our decisions. You know, knowing how to properly navigate through life, that's generally referred to as wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to make good decisions with good information. It is knowledge and application kind of rolled into one. The ability to look at our life, choose the best course of action. You know, James, as we've been moving through these series of conversations, James wrote this letter, the book of James, which we will be there. If you want to turn there, you can turn to James chapter 3. We'll be starting in verse 13 in a few moments. The, the words will be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. If you're following along in the Version app, the words will be in there as well. But James wrote this letter to churches and individual Christians as well who were going through some difficult times. 
Persecution was heating up. Life was hard. The, the believers were scattered among the known world because of the persecution. And so James wrote this letter as a way to maybe help them to have an unyielding faith in the face of whatever it was that was coming their way. Help them to be able to stand no matter what came. You know, to have an unyielding faith in life, it requires of us to use the right kind of wisdom. It requires of us as well to honestly examine ourselves to see, are we where we should be? Are we using the right wisdom given the situation? So let's take a look here. James chapter 3, starting in verse 13. James wrote this. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. I want to stop there. We'll, we'll go on in a moment, but I want to stop there for a moment. James used a few words in here. The Greek word that's translated as wise in the English language, it was sophos, or the, the, the root word is sophia. The word means wisdom. In the pre-Christ world, in the Greek-speaking world, the word pointed to somebody who was a master craftsman. It pointed to somebody who knew their, their craft so well that they were the person you went to to make sure the job got done right. It's kind of like having a mechanic that, that you trust. You go to that mechanic because when you take your car there, it gets fixed right the first time. So this word carried with it that idea of somebody who was, well, who knew how to do what they were doing with expertise. It was later on this word developed into it the idea of how we would understand wisdom today. Though that original idea of being a master craftsman in a specific area carried with into that concept. A wise person then is somebody who is skilled at life. This would be somebody that you see their life and you see them navigating the difficulties of life making good choices. Not necessarily that everything goes well for them, but they navigate whatever comes their way well. So they would be somebody you would go to for advice. That's the idea with wisdom. The, the word wisdom, it carries some significance for believers specifically. While its basic meaning means to know how to regulate your course in view of your surroundings, for the Christian, a better understanding may be along the lines of to know how to regulate or direct your life in view of God. Biblical wisdom, godly wisdom, is able to navigate our life in view of who God is. James also used the word understanding here. Who is wise and understanding among you? In the ancient world, that word translated as understanding was often synonymous with the word translated as wisdom. It meant to be able to understand and evaluate. It indicated being skilled at something so you know how to perform the task. So James really was asking a question here of his readers, of the Christians and churches. He was asking them questions. Who thinks that they are good at navigating their life in a godly manner? Who thinks that they've got a good grasp on being and living as a Christian? That's his question. Readers then, you see, would be left to ask themselves a question that we ourselves are left to ask ourselves. Am I following God's design or my desire? 
Am I making decisions based on God's design for things, or am I making decisions based on my own desires? So James goes on to respond to his own question in many ways like he did back in chapter 2. So if you remember so far, we've looked at a few different things that James has pointed out. He talked to them about their faith and making sure that it's where it should be, that they're actually trusting God. He talked about actions and words and how it is that in chapter 2 he said, who believes that they've got faith? Show it to me by your life, by the actions that you do. Well, here he, he answers his own question in many of the ways like he did there. Who thinks that they're wise? Well, let your life show it. Your life will demonstrate the kind of wisdom you are using in life for yourself and for the people around you. If we claim to have faith, we'll strive to live how God designed. If we claim to be wise, if we believe that we are wise, our life will show that reality. We can claim to be wise or believe, but if our life doesn't demonstrate that, then we are left with the question, which person or which, which source are we using for our wisdom? And James went on to talk about here, and we'll get to these passages in just a moment, that there are two kinds of wisdom that we can select from. One is not very godly. Actually, it's not godly at all. And the other is. And he indicated that this is our choice. We choose which wisdom we want to follow. And he taught as well here in this opening section that godly wisdom will be seen in deeds done in humility, is what he said. The word humility is an interesting word. It means, in its original language, it meant gentleness of attitude and behavior in contrast with harshness in one's dealings with other people. Some languages, as they're translating uh, the, the Bible into their language, they, can't, they translate this word, this idea, as not being harsh with other people. Wise person, in other words. It's, wise people are people who are not easily offended. They are not easily provoked. They don't fly off the handle easily. They are self-controlled. They are even-keeled people. They know how to keep a lid on themselves. A wise person, James is saying. They've learned They've learned how to control their words, how to control their actions, because of the leading of the Holy Spirit in them, as we talked about last week. These people, they may get angry, but when they do, they don't sin in their anger. And when they get angry, they are angry about things that God would be angry about. Not because they personally were hurt or offended. They get angry over the things God gets angry about. And then, in their interactions with people, when they are angry, they're not harsh. They're not bitter. They're not vicious in any way. Their attitude and their tones, tone of voice will be more gentle. So for those claiming or believing that they are wise, James said that their life will demonstrate the reality. And again, I need to stress something here. We need to remember who it is that James was writing to. James was writing to believers, to churches, who were scattered among, around the known world because of the persecution that was going on. He was writing to either one of two different options. Either one, he was writing and addressing issues going on in churches, or two, writing to address potential issues that churches may have. Either way, whichever it may be, the principle of what he's saying here still applies. Whether he was writing to issues that were going on in churches or potential issues. 
So let's go ahead and look at each of these different wisdoms that James talked about to find out how we too can have an unyielding faith by making sure that we're following God's design, not our desire. So picking it up again in verse 14, James goes on. He says, But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. So the first wisdom that James is talking about here is not from God. It is earthly, unspiritual. The, the more modern translation of the NIV calls it demonic. Others say that it is um, from Satan or, or from hell. Various ways of translating that concept, but it's not pretty either way. And again, I want to stress this. It is important that we remember that James is writing to Christians in churches, potentially addressing issues there or potential issues. James gave them, us as well then, a test to find out whether or not which wisdom is being followed, I should say. He said, where this ungodly wisdom is being followed, there you find disorder and sinful practices sinful behaviors, evil practices. Word disorder, it doesn't mean like, like if you were to look into my garage, you would say, well, that's disorder. Actually, you'd probably call it a dump because it's kind of this storage unit that just fell apart all over the floor. But anyway, that's not really what disorder is talking about here from the Greek word. The word disorder, as James used it, it's a word that points to a different picture. It means to rise up in open defiance of authority, to act in complete opposition to its demands. Not quite the same thing as maybe a cluttered desk or a cluttered room. It carries the idea of disruption in the community through disputes. So, if a church has internal conflict, it is a high probability that the people there are not following godly wisdom. See, God has given instructions for the church. God has already given instructions for how a church is to operate, how it is to function. And when the believers in a church do not follow with God's design, it is evidence that they are not following godly wisdom. Hebrews 13, 17 gives us one of these instructions. He says, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority. You know, I have to say this. The New Testament is not naive to the possibility, or even, I should say, to the reality, that sometimes church leaders lead a church in the wrong direction. New Testament isn't naive to that. That is a reality they battled. That's a reality we will battle. And that is a reality that um, churches will face as long as the church is still on earth before Jesus returns. But there's something we have to understand. We need to look to how the New Testament presents things to understand how to handle when a situation is like that. At every instance in the New Testament where it talks about the possibility of leaders taking a church in the wrong direction, it gives clear biblical instructions. Elders, which are the ones in the Hebrews that I was just talking about, elders, if they're going to be accused of something, leading the church in the wrong direction, elders must have multiple witnesses against them of sinful behaviors. Not of, I don't like what they're doing, but sinful behaviors. That it must be, we must be able to point to biblical issues where they are going against God. 
Furthermore, the New Testament gives us this picture that baseless accusations that where there's only a few people claiming it and nothing to point to Scripture to say how they're going wrong, those baseless accusations are then to be ignored. Every accusation held against an elder must have biblical backing behind it. Then, only after clearly demonstrating that it is sin, should an elder be dealt with accordingly. However, if sin is not the issue... Submission to the elders is expected of the church by God's design. I like how the website desiringgod.org described that Hebrews passage. Had this to say, I should have a bent toward trusting church leaders or elders. Be bent that way. Don't be distrustful of people. Second, I should have a disposition to be supportive in my attitudes and actions toward the goals and the direction of the leaders. If they craft a vision and they set some goals, be supportive. Go with them. I think this means we should want to imitate their faith. And I think it means we should have a happy inclination to comply with their instructions. So if you ever find a church where the elders are not sinning, and yet you find people disregarding the leading of the elders, where you find bickering in the background, or maybe even openly, if you find whispering and murmuring about the elders and the leadership in general, if that is what you find in a church, then know that there are people in that church who are not following godly wisdom. Because godly wisdom looks to Scripture and what does God design? How does God design things? If bickering is there, if disruption is there, if disorder is there, then it isn't God's design for the church. James says that that kind of wisdom, that kind of wisdom flows from envy and selfish ambition. Word envy, it's a, it's a translation of two different Greek words. Zealous, and, and pikron. Zealous is where we get our English word zeal or zealous. It's a good word in many instances. It points to things like, for example, God calls us to be zealous for Him and His commands. We are to be dedicated to or passionate toward Him and His commands. Zeal can also be applied to things and people, and not always in a negative way. To be focused on someone or something. However, James attached that other word, pikron. When he attached that word to, that, to the word translated of the idea of zeal, well, it moves it out of a positive light into a negative one. That word pikron, it carries the idea of a bitter taste or painful emotions. So then, it changes the meaning of zeal into that of envy. It carries the idea of jealousy or resentfulness. But James also talked about the idea of selfish ambition. That means the feelings of resentfulness toward others. Synonym almost. It has to do with feelings of superiority toward other people. person with selfish ambitions, well, they make decisions based on themselves, their own world, and their own people. The people like themselves. James is saying that if you have these in your life, if you find these in your church, don't lie against the truth. Don't claim to be wise. He then used three descriptions, three terms to describe 
this kind of wisdom. First of all, this wisdom is earthly wisdom. It's a natural wisdom. It lives by the five senses. It's a here and now wisdom. This wisdom doesn't really look to the future much unless it directly pertains to me and my own. As a matter of fact, when you hear conversations from a person who's following this kind of wisdom, and in, per, in situations, say, like within the church, you'll hear a lot of I and me in their conversation. And less about God's design. Less about the we and the us. James also said that uh, this wisdom is unspiritual wisdom. In other words, this wisdom lives by the flesh and not by the leading of the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, James said that this wisdom is demonic wisdom. You know, it might have been a little easier pill to swallow had James not added that in there. I mean, we could, we could maybe excuse ourselves and say, well, I, I made a mistake, that was just poor choice in my decisions, if James had not included that. But because James included that this wisdom is demonic wisdom, it puts it into a whole other realm, a whole other world now, when we include this idea. James makes a very bold statement here by saying that this kind of wisdom is demonic wisdom. See, if I base my decisions based on envy and selfish ambition, the reality is I am following Satan's leading for my decision-making. See, Satan, he rebelled against God. He didn't want to take the position that God had given him. He wanted God's position. He wanted to be the one calling the shots. God, I understand what your design is, but I want to do things my way. Because you're just not getting things done right. In essence, that's what he did. And when we follow this kind of wisdom, we are following in His footsteps. We are rejecting God's design for our own preference. If we live and react from our own desires rather than God's design, we're not following godly wisdom. So James went on. Continuing on in verse 17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. See, the second wisdom is godly wisdom. A wisdom that is based in God's character, who God is. James then went on to describe what a person looks like who is following godly wisdom. So we have clear picture here now. We have a clear picture here of what a person who is following this ungodly wisdom, and now we're going to look at what a picture looks like of somebody who is following godly wisdom. First of all, the godly wisdom is pure. In other words, it has no ulterior motives. It is a single-purposed wisdom. That purpose is God and His design. Decisions and desires are based around the idea of will this bring glory to God? Will God be pleased with this decision revolves around that idea is this what God wants and then doesn't answer that question from emotions doesn't answer that question from our own perspectives but rather answers that question from scripture is able to go back to the Bible and say this right here is why this is God's design God says it right here it's based in scripture able to point to the Bible to indicate the decisions and the desires. James said also that this, God, this uh, wisdom, godly wisdom, is peace-loving. 
This is the kind of peace that is only produced as a result of relationship with God. It's not a peace that happens any other way. It is only because of a relationship with God. It denotes harmonious relationships between people. It indicates a push to still tensions, hostilities. This wisdom, you see, extends grace first and last and at every moment. This wisdom looks to the reality that I have received many things from God, His grace and His mercy being top among them. And now, my response is to extend that to other people. Godly wisdom is also considerate. You could describe the person who follows godly wisdom as in their being considerate. They are fair and moderate. This isn't somebody who holds to the letter of the law, but again, extends grace. Further, this person doesn't fly off the handle easily. They're that even-tempered, even-keeled person. Godly wisdom is also submissive. Nobody really likes that word applied to ourselves, do we? It's easier to apply it to other people, but not to myself. But godly wisdom is submissive. It points to somebody who is compliant or obedient to God and His design. Obedient to God's words. Submissive to His commands. Even as I just described, submissive to God's design for His church. Next, godly wisdom is full of mercy and good fruit. Mercy, again, has to do with forgiving other people. And so, a person who's following godly wisdom is somebody who remembers what God has given them and extends to the people around them, not that they deserve to be forgiven, but understands, I, I didn't deserve to be forgiven, and yet God forgave me anyway. And so they are willing to extend forgiveness first and always. Good fruit? Good fruit is a byproduct of desiring God and the things of God. In other words, doing what is right. A person who's following godly wisdom is also impartial. They are not prejudiced. They do not show partiality. They consider all people as equal. This person doesn't hold greater value to some groups of people and lesser value to others. Finally, James said that godly wisdom is sincere. It's without hypocrisy. It is genuine. A person who displays godly wisdom is who they appear to be. In every situation, in every circumstance, that is who they are. You won't find them behaving one way in one setting and another way in another setting. It is who they are in all situations. They aren't two-faced. You are what you get with them. James also talked about the, the, the person who's following godly wisdom, they are peacemakers harvesting righteousness. I need to clarify a term here. We'll miss what James was talking about because of our modern understanding of the idea of being a peacemaker. Peacemaker isn't somebody who just soothes things over. Peacemaker is not somebody who hopes things will clear themselves up, sweep the issues under the rug, pacify maybe. That's not the idea of a peacemaker in biblical terms. A peacemaker is somebody who does what is necessary to bring about real peace, which is that right relationship with God. This person, as illustrated that James did of sowing seeds and reaping a harvest, they do something about the situations 
in order to bring about peace. Just like with plants, some plants they require cultivating and pruning. They require that we work with them in order to get a good harvest. We may get a harvest if we do nothing with them, but it may not be very good. The same is true in terms of the church. That sometimes, if left to its own, if issues are not addressed, well then, it doesn't develop like God intended. And so for the peacemakers that James is talking about here, sometimes they need to step in. Sometimes correction is needed. Sometimes healing is needed. Sometimes encouragement. But they do whatever it is that is necessary in order to help peace develop. That correction, when it's necessary, encouragement, whatever it is that comes along, it is impartial. It is sincere. It is full of mercy. Submitted to God. It is according to His design for the church. It's based in godly wisdom, in other words. Other times, peacemakers need to cultivate in other people things so that their, church, their, their faith may increase. That their faith may mature. See, peacemakers aren't people who just soothe things over. They take a proactive role in helping the relationships between godly people to develop where they need to be. But also, peacemakers don't, as I said earlier, they don't sweep the issues under the rug. They confront the issues to bring peace. Godly wisdom, you see, results in genuine peace among God's people. Or I should say it results in that, not from it. Not just to cease fire. The peace that James is talking about here is not that the two parties agree to stop fighting, but that they agree to stop fighting because they've come to a genuine peace. But I have to say this, unfortunately, and I say unfortunately on purpose, unfortunately this is a two-way street. You know, elsewhere we're told in the New Testament to do all that we can to live at peace among each other, among other people among those outside the church and among those within the church. We are to do all that we can from our side to try to bring about peace. Now, if every party within the church is doing all they can to bring about peace, you'll have peace. But sometimes, sometimes, sometimes one party decides to follow earthly wisdom, that unspiritual wisdom, that, that demonic wisdom, while the other party is seeking godly wisdom. And if that's the case, you can't have full peace is what James is talking about here. We can only go so far. We can't force other people to have peace. It requires both believers to choose godly wisdom for genuine peace to evolve. doesn't mean that both parties always agree. But it means that if they cannot agree, they can disagree agreeably. They learn to get along with each other even with a different perspective. Those who follow godly wisdom, as James points out, they leave behind them a trail of peace. A trail of righteousness behind them. So again, we're left with that question. Am I following God's design or my desire? Am I looking to see what is God's design for life? Or am I looking to see what is my greatest desire in life? You know, we have to understand, godly wisdom isn't just some theoretical, pie-in-the-sky type thing. 
Godly wisdom is practical. Godly wisdom is moral. It is something that we can actually achieve here and now. Godly wisdom isn't something unattainable, but rather it is attainable. And it is practical for life. We can choose to follow God's leading and see the reality of it in our own lives and the lives of those around us. You know, Paul in Galatians 5, 16-26, I'm not going to read the passages. I encourage you to look them up on your own. But there in that section, Paul talks about two different paths that all believers have ahead of them. Two different choices that we can make. We can follow this direction, or we can follow that direction. And it's a choice. He makes it clear. One path follows the desires of the flesh, the natural desires of life. This is that ungodly wisdom. We follow with how we want things to be. The other path follows the leading of the Holy Spirit. And the result of that is godly wisdom. But Paul makes it very clear in this section there, in that Galatians 5, 16-26. Paul makes it very clear. This is our choice. We choose this earthly, unspiritual, even demonic wisdom, or we choose godly wisdom. We choose to go how we want things to go, or we choose to go how God designed things to go in all areas of life. This is our choice. Our choice. I believe that's what James is saying here. We daily, maybe even moment by moment, we can choose godly wisdom time and time again. And I guarantee the result of that will be better decisions. We all look at the difficulties we face in life, just like the first readers then did, and the difficulties they were facing, which I guarantee were a lot worse than many of the ones that we face today. And James was encouraging them, choose godly wisdom in the face of the pressure you feel. Whatever that pressure may be, choose godly wisdom. Look to Scripture. Look to see what God would have to say. Choose it. Moment by moment, choose to follow God's wisdom. Do we go with how we feel? Do we go with what we want? Or do we, as Jesus said, take up our cross daily and follow Him? Die to what we want to live by God's design. I guarantee it is a better way of living. God's one who created us. He knows how we work. He knows what will be best for us. If we follow His design, things will work out better. Follow God's wisdom. Choose the higher way. So do we follow God's design or our desire? That's our, that's our homework for this week. Moment by moment as we are going through our life this week, ask yourself the question, is this God's design or is this my desire? Is this direction I'm considering God's design? Is it something that matches with what Scripture says? Matches with God's character? Or is it something, the direction I'm considering going, is it something that meets only me and my wants? <coughs> It's our choice. Every day we have this choice. 